0: today we continue our series, The Unusual Suspects, The Profiles of a Prophet, and today we're looking at the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, He's an interesting one. So every day we're faced with choices, and those choices kind of require us to choose between options, taking one path or the other. In the often quoted, perhaps too often quoted, uh, Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, uh, he kind of addresses this. So at the risk of over-quoting something that's quoted. The, The poem goes like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down, one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, Though, as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how one way leads to another, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. One thing I, I love about poetry is uh, we're never quite sure what it means. You know, the, the, the poets kind of have their own cryptic way of speaking, and one person will read or hear a poem and think one thing, and one person will read a, another person will read a poem and think something else. I've often heard this one interpreted as though and a kind of a spirit of exceptionalism. Like, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. But I, but I think in the, in the larger sense of the poem, it's, it's less to do with kind of being exceptional and having kind of chosen that one rare path. And it's more the idea that we're always making choices. And once we've made the choice, then, then that leads us down a path. We don't, we don't live all the possibilities of our lives. In fact, we, we live very few of them. And each choice that we make does make a difference. Because perhaps we might make our way around and be faced with those same two choices again. But that's pretty rare. Because generally one path leads to another path. And we, we never find ourselves back at that same fork that we once were. And so the point is, is that our choices do make a difference. And the paths we do take. And we've, we've come to the place we are today in a very literal sense. On, on June the 25th, 2017, you find yourself sitting here at Oasis because of various choices that you've previously made. And that has brought us here today. So what's interesting about the prophets, is the Hebrew prophets, is when they think about the future... It's never completely fixed. It's not as though God has already kind of predetermined everything and we just have to wait and it out. There's this endless hope in the future. Possibilities. Repent and be saved and be delivered and be rescued from the enemy or from the disaster or from yourselves. Don't repent and be judged, be punished be taken into captivity. What's interesting about Jeremiah's version, or Jeremiah's prophecy, is that his prophecy came more like this. My fellow Jews, you have sinned, and your parents have sinned, and your grandparents have sinned, and this can't go on forever without some consequences. So, here are your options. Repent, and be taken into captivity and have your whole city and houses and your, our very temple destroyed. That's what happens if you repent. Well, Jeremiah, what if we don't repent? Then you'll be utterly destroyed. Just completely. We're going to wipe you out. Now, 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 Jeremiah. That's, that's strong, strong language. The word of the Lord, the Lord, Lord Jeremiah, And in chapter John, verse 10, it says this. See, today I appointed you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Ouch. That's not the best news. Babylon's coming to destroy Jerusalem as punishment for their, he, the, the Hebrews' bad behavior. You might as well go ahead and pluck up your garden and tear down your houses. A common response to times of punishment is how long will this last? How, how long will we suffer? Uh, or, in a very practical sense, how long do I have to sit in the timeout chair? Well, well in this case, it's- Go ahead and build a house and plant a garden. How long will the Jews be in captivity? Well, long enough that you can't just twiddle your thumbs. You have to live your life. You have to live your life in exile, he says. Go ahead and pluck up your gardens and tear down your houses. And when you get to Babylon, you're going to be there long enough that you should go ahead and build a house and plant a garden. I believe Jeremiah, that is the, the biblical book of Jeremiah, divides very evenly between chapters 1 through 25, which has to do with plucking up and tearing down their preparation for the exile, and chapters 26 through 52, which has a lot to do with building and planting. How, how do we kind of survive the exile? On, on a very side note... Um, no, I won't go there. Sorry. The Jerusalem... Six, Stick to the notes, Rob. Um, the Jerusalemites rebut Jeremiah. They say, but Jerry... I imagine that's what they called him because they were probably tight with him. We have the temple of the Lord. Surely you must realize we are God's chosen people. Uh, we're right with God. No such judgment can come on us. Or other words, God would never allow Babylon, the evil empire to come and destroy Jerusalem, or more or less your house, the temple that's in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says, well, you're right, or at least you misunderstood me. I didn't say God was going to allow the Babylonians to come and destroy Jerusalem. I said God was sending the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem. Jeremiah says this. This is in chapter uh, 7, verse 4 and then skipping down to verse 8. He says... Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you know not know, or excuse me, that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are safe. Only to go on doing these abominations, has this house, which is called my, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching," says the Lord. Perhaps you you recognize that bit of the phrase that this house has become a den of robbers. Uh, Jesus cites this as he's doing his temple action in the Gospels. It's a, it's a bit of a, um, a mashup. He starts with a passage from Isaiah that my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And then he ends with this passage from Jeremiah, but you have made it a den of robbers. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But what were they saying? Apparently, they were saying, we have the temple of the Lord. That was always the response to Jeremiah when he says judgment's coming. But they go, ah, Jeremiah, we have the temple of the Lord. I don't, he must have heard this quite a bit because he finally kind of lo- sounds to me anyway. It's hard to read tone and, and uh, you know, literature. But it sounds to me like he's lost his temper just a bit. Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Stop saying temple of the Lord. It's not going to save you. It's, it's not a luck, good luck charm. It's not a talisman. We don't have those in our faith. There's nothing that you can just kind of carry it around and somehow it's just going to help you. Um, Sometimes we do make that mistake. We have these powerful symbols in our lives or these icons which help remind us of God or kind of frame our sight to view God, but they can't become substitutes for God. They remind us and they aid our focus. Um, They're not so much popular anymore, but do you remember the, the WWJD bracelets? Yeah, we love those things, right? We wore the bracelet, we, we wore the t-shirt, we wore the, had the bumper sticker. Um, I almost uh, produced uh, for today some TOTL bracelets, uh, Temple of the Lord. <laughs> We're going to have you all wear them today and then rip them off and off. We changed our minds. We didn't want to reinforce the bad behavior. So we we do this, right? And, and, and maybe you did it, maybe I did it. Um, we have other things. Uh, we wear crosses of gold around our necks or in our ears, and we, we tattoo crosses on our arms or our chest. We, um, we put these little fish on the back of our cars. Sometimes our little fish try to eat the science fish to try and, you know, show our superiority over them. And so, some of that... I think is worthy of critique other than that I think it's probably not altogether unhealthy that there are ways to kind of uh, live our lives and remind ourselves that you know what's important to us and if it serves as a reminder and it serves as a guide to kind of keep our gaze on God I think that can be help, healthy and helpful but but I also think that sometimes we can trust in those things too much right so with the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Jesus do it. Or when would Jesus do it? Or how would Jesus do it? Or why would Jesus do it? Or what would Jesus do say? Or what does Jesus not do? Or who would Jesus do it with? Or who would do Jesus do it for? Like there's so many other questions that need to be asked that flesh those things out and actually make them healthy. And when we kind of have this kind of reductionistic, well, I have this one thing, therefore I must be okay. We, we run into uh, kind of risky, uh, dangerous circumstances. Yes, uh, the Jews were God's chosen people. But their, their united kingdom had been divided. And the northern kingdom, which was made up of 10 of the 12 tribes, had already been destroyed and dispersed. So much so that their descendants are now unknown. Like, we don't know who would have belonged to those tribes. They got kind of lost in history. They were so utterly dispersed. So we're left with this remnant of the southern kingdom, Judah, which was made up of only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And yes, they had the temple. But having the temple was not enough. And God had said this previously to the other prophets. He had said, Zimel is better than sacrifice. He says at one point, he says, "Your sacrifices are like a stench, stench on my nostrils; nostrils. they, they stink stink to me. me. It makes me want to vomit." Um, New Testament prophets will use this same language. Uh, the word of the Lord comes to the church at Laodicea, and God says, "I word that you be the hot, hot, your cold, your hot water for kind of soaking a sort of joint, or or you know, fixing some coffee or hot tea." Cold water's good for refreshing, but this kind of lukewarmness you have just makes me want to puke. We don't want to <speaking> or especially <speaking> practice our worship, and in the practice of our worship, make God sick. <laughs> that's that's not our goal. But I wonder how that would happen. I don't think it would happen simply because we, we do things poorly. Like we can't get the screen to come on right, or we turn on the wrong light, or, or the mic doesn't work. I I don't think that's what make would make God sick. I think it's the incongruous nature between our lives and and our words. Are we stealing, murdering, committing adultery, and swearing falsely, making offerings to other gods, and then come into the house of God and say, well? everything's going to be all right for us because we're in the house of God. We can't can't spend our weeks assassinating the character of other people at work or in our neighborhood and then come into our church and raise our hands when we sing. Because as we do, I think all God can see is is the blood of, of his children on our hands. And God's serious about this. As serious as you would be if someone came after your children, he is serious when you go after other human beings. We have to have space and room and care. We can't participate in the way the world participates in the, the vilization of the other. Um, it becomes confusing sometimes, I know. And, and this is exactly what I think was going on with the temple when Jesus was around. The temple was doing, in a lot of ways, what it was intended to do. It was a house of worship, right? They were offering sacrifices to God. But to quote the passage from Isaiah, it's to be a house of prayer for all nations, except they had made it a place just for Jews. Literally, they had a wall and signs that said, if you're not Jewish and you come in here, we're going to kill you. We have reference to those signs that there were three, we actually found one of them. I say we, um, archaeologists found one of them. And, and, we, uh, and it's now in the Jerusalem Museum, right? These lines of segregation that would keep people out based on race. So it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but they've kind of made it just for them. And he said, and you've made it this kind of bin of thieves. Now this isn't a sermon on Jesus' action in the temple, But you can see that Jesus' action there is in the same rhythm and in the same mode as the critique that Jeremiah is offering here. Part of the challenge, of course, is that um, we are easily confused, and even sometimes by Scripture. Take, for example, the passage from Jeremiah chapter 29, for surely... I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future with a hope. Now let me tell you, that is definitely refrigerator worthy, right? I mean, that's a good passage from Jeremiah. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare, not, to, not for your harm, to give you a future with a hope. I can't tell you how popular that is with the kids at the college Right? They can't, you know, no. choose a major-ager. Major. They're, they're worried that somehow they're going to get through the spring semester without a romantic prospect. You know? Ring by spring. We, all, we have these, these hopes and these desires for ourselves. Um, like somebody should have told me this is what it meant to be an adult. Because I thought when you became an adult you were more confident in yourself. I thought you actually knew the answers, and instead, you're just a big kid trying to make it through this world. I don't know if anybody else ever feels that way. The the verse before that, which we never quote, says this, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And will I fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place? Whew. There's a good reason why we don't quote that part. I uh, know the plans I have for you, the Lord, says the Lord. But, but only after the 70 years in exile, Well, at least in this historical case, while there is ultimately good news, it's not for the people who are currently living. It's for the people who will be living 70 years from now. It's for their children or it's for their grandchildren. There, there's a, a lifetime reality of the exiles, of the exile for the exiles, those who have been exiled. In fact, it, that's, that's how it often is, I think, for us as well. I took the road less traveled by. I, I came this way and now I'm here And it's brought me here, and I'm happy to be here, but oh, the the pain and suffering that we've had that have brought us to this point. Now, having said this, there's an important point to make. And uh, this is the point that I think often gets left out of the prophets, and it's probably why we don't like to listen to the prophets, because they sound like so much doom and gloom. Oh, my Lord, how could we possibly be here forever? But here's the important point to make. Jeremiah is not a prophet of doom. Ultimately, he is a prophet of hope. The immediate future might be punishment. And, it, and it, it may even last for a long time. But it's not the end of the story. On the one hand, he speaks of the exile as the ultimate destruction. He'll say, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children, and she refuses to be comforted because they are no more. This is this is so complex and overlayered, <clears throat> unless you really understand the kind of the history of Israel. <clears throat> so Jeremiah is is in like the sixth century B.C. Right, the, North, the you know Moses, uh, conquest, judges. United Kingdom, divided kingdom, northern kingdom destroyed, southern kingdom under oppression. Now, he looks back. He's talking about something that's getting ready to happen—the exile. He looks way back to Rachel seeing her children first migrate down to Egypt, and then in kind of captivity for them. So he uses this kind of ancient reference to refer to kind of a future not so distant future reality that would weigh in Matthew will cite this as a prophecy for the, the Hebrew babies that are killed in Bethlehem so this, this has kind of a deep and kind of haunting imagery for the Hebrews but as I said this is not the end of the story the story is not over Because Jeremiah, just a few verses after this, will prophesy about a new beginning, better than the story or the country that they lost. And in kind of classic, cryptic, poetic language of the prophet, he says this, For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encompasses a man. How's that for a metaphor? I know we've been through tough times. I know tougher times are coming. But God will do a new thing. A woman will encompass a man. Other translation says a woman encircles a man. A seed is in the stump. A man with a hat is by the duck pond. A baby shall eat cottage cheese. I mean, sometimes the prophets, like, they're impenetrable uh, riddles. So, um, when is a man completely surrounded by a woman? Yeah, or even pre-birth, right? There is a time, so to speak, I'm not a woman, but imagine I am for a second. That, that a man is completely encircled by a woman. I'm going to do a new thing. A woman encompasses a man is a, is a messianic prophecy and promise of hope. That there will come a baby and that baby will provide you a new way of being in this world. A way that overcomes uh, all of the past. A way, it doesn't erase the past, but it gets us through it. It strengthens us. It gives us hope and vision. Um, It brings us to a new place. I mean, one of the things that the Hebrews and their prophets have to teach us is that life is not easy, but God is faithful. God is always with us. And there is a plan. And as we said in the call to worship, God knew us before we knew God. And this plan comes through his son.